This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm speaking on this edition of Update One with Susan Eisenhower. The latest of her four books is called How Ike Led, about her grandfather, President Dwight David Eisenhower. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. Susan Eisenhower was born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, the daughter of an Army officer. She grew up in Washington and Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, when her father served as a White House aide to his father, President Eisenhower. Later on, when President Richard Nixon appointed John Eisenhower ambassador to Belgium, she was able to attend the American University of Paris. Susan, you initially were interested in a career in journalism. First of all, I started out writing personality profiles. I like storytelling. I think it's actually central to effective human communication. But I was writing for some national magazines, and surprisingly or not, I was publishing humor and enjoyed it very much. But then when I moved to Washington in 1984, I had gone from journalism into strategic communications, and I worked for a very large firm called Burson Marsteller. It's not called that anymore, but at the time it was the world's largest public relations agency. We're uh, marketing issues in front of Congress or or the White House, directional issues for our country. So that's what really changed the trajectory of my career. How did you get up to speed on some of the highly complex issues? Public affairs people are never experts in the classical sense of the word. We have uh, the scientific and engineering community that knows, but a public affairs person like myself would be more knowledgeable about the policy aspects of it. Your learning curve accelerated when you met Roald Sergeyev, a physicist in Soviet Russia. My former husband is a physicist and very, very distinguished scientist in the area of space. I think probably in his tenure at the Space Research Institute, I think he launched over 100 spacecraft to Mars and Venus and elsewhere. The two of us really worked very hard with NASA. I was very involved in space issues for a long time and was honored to have worked with NASA at the beginning of the cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union, then Russia, on the building of the International Space Station. What did you find was different about the Russian approach? The Russian objectives were to be competitive in space and to be able to afford it. Just that simple. The Americans wanted to be in space and be predominant. Ironically, at the end of the day, until recently, the Russians were the only ones with a transportation system. For instance, when they ran out of resources to build more of a certain kind of rocket, they would use parts from old rockets they couldn't use anymore. It's just a very different mentality. In a way, they were the long-distance runner. What interests you most about space flight? I love the planetary stuff. For me, nothing is more thrilling than looking at the photos that came back from uh, Hubble and another very sophisticated payload on the International Space Station that's looking even beyond what Hubble could see into the origins of the universe. What was the history of these planets and what and how they evolved? I love the deep space probes. Pretty thrilling stuff. Now, you started your own business consultancy in 1986. Was your 
Russia experienced part of that. Well, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union and then after that, there was a lot of enthusiasm about going to Russia and becoming partners in the beginning of their transition to a market economy. So yeah, we did a lot of work over there at that time. And there have been some very successful areas of cooperation. We know about McDonald's expanding into Russia. Were there others? Oh, yeah. Boeing had a huge operation there. I think it still does. And many, many companies. You also got involved in energy issues and served on advisory panels with three different U.S. secretaries of energy. A big part of the work I've done has been on nuclear energy. I regard that as a clean energy issue. I think what our goal as a nation and as a globe is around clean energy. I think we may end up going through a period when we think we don't need it, and then what's going to happen is we'll have to reinvent ourselves all over again. Nuclear energy was brought to the global community in 1953, and there's something sad about voluntarily giving up your leadership position in an industrial sector, but that's what we're busy doing. Nevertheless, we still have the largest fleet in the world, and we could have had nuclear repositories without any difficulty in this country a long time ago if it hadn't been such a hot potato issue. You know, I sat on a, a one government commission, and of all the non-governmental commissioners, I was the only person who had been into the tunnel at Yucca Mountain just because the old reporter in me the thing that was terrific about it is you got to go out and kick the tires. You got to get some kind of a sense of what that issue is really all about. And so I just went out and started going to these places, obviously with the help and support of the people who run them and other allies in this field. President Eisenhower was your grandfather, but you seem to have needed extensive research in order to write how Ike led. I was fortunate to know him very well to the extent that anybody at the age of 17 or 18 knows somebody they spend a lot of time with really well. But I think we did because we were a very close family. But we were always taught as kids to compartmentalize our relationship with him from his career. And so I found myself looking at him as somebody I didn't know for a lot of the research on this book. I have a painting that he gave me on the signature part of the painting, and as you may know, he painted for relaxation, and I think it helped him a lot. So he gave me a painting in 1958, and it says on the painting itself that it's painted in 1957. So what was he dealing with while he was painting that painting? He was dealing with Sputnik and all the fallout from that, and then Little Rock. And so it's, it's rather extraordinary to think that in those brush strokes, here's a man that was brushing away the things that were really on his mind. And I must tell you, I'm even more intrigued by the painting because it's extraordinarily placid. He was known for doing extraordinarily placid landscapes, even though, no doubt, he was thinking through some complicated things. Personally, I think he was a better portrait painter because I think he's more interested in people. But his painting of Winston Churchill is really quite extraordinary. As a leader, you wrote that President Eisenhower listened to dissenting points of view, planned carefully, made a decision, took responsibility for it, and sought to persuade the public here and abroad. He had a real relationship with the American public. And it's not surprising if you think about it, because so many of them were under his command during World War II. He didn't actually have a political basis support. His basis support were people who had been under his command during the war or had been part of the war effort. And there were many Democrats who voted for him because they served under him. And 
his overarching goal was to bring about uh, unity of purpose, to unite this country around a set of ideas that would be the basis point, the middle road, so that people could coalesce around a middle place and resolve their differences and compromise. And he was actually very successful at that during his presidency. He passed at least 80% of his legislative agenda with six years of a Congress controlled in both houses by the Democrats. And he did that, obviously, by bringing those people together and making them partners in a cause to work for America. President Eisenhower recruited a respected journalist, Jim Haggerty of the New York Times, to be his press secretary. I have a little chapter called Ike's Rules for Good Governance. Jim Haggerty plays a big role in that. And Jim Haggerty was one of the towering figures of my youth, this wonderful, dynamic redhead who was with Ike a tremendous amount. He was a very important figure in Ike's presidency. Dwight Eisenhower had a personal press conference once a week. and. I think it was a very effective way of communicating to retain the trust of the American people during his heart attack of 1955. I think we're all still kind of agog at how much detail was released to the public about the president's condition. And he was very insistent on that because, remember, at that time, the most recent role model of what not to do was probably Woodrow Wilson's illness while president. The newest monument near Washington's mall will honor President Eisenhower. The noted architect Frank Gehry was commissioned to design it. Why was the Eisenhower family's first reaction that the proposal that Gehry sketched was inadequate? The original theme was the Kansas countryside and a young boy looking at his future. Out of respect for the people who lost their lives during World War II and the victims of the Holocaust, and all of the people who reported for duty in those years, that was really too whimsical an approach for two decades that were just extraordinarily complex for the outcome of the war and then the transition of the post-war period. The theme is now the beaches of Normandy in peacetime, because this takes us not just from the assault on the French coastline on D-Day, but winning the peace you know, after that war was over was a very big part of it. So I think it's moving, and I think that the theme itself is about Dwight Eisenhower for sure, but it's about everybody else, too. On that note, thank you, Susan Eisenhower, for joining me on this edition of Update One. I'm Irv Chapman in Washington. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.